G'day. Osher here. Thanks for listening to the show. Quickly, before we get started, just want to let you know you might hear an ad. If you do, thank you. You're helping me uh, keep the lights on here at BTYHQ. Help me pay Andy and Rachel, who and Bree, who helps me make the show. Small team, great team, awesome team. So if you hear an ad, thank you. You help me pay the team. If not, eh, you're going to hear Heidi Lee say something cool. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We are not in control of our destiny here. Australia is going to get to zero emissions. We're either going to get there slowly and painfully and behind the pack, and it's going to get more and more painful. There are going to be more and more downsides to going slowly. We are not kidding. If you go hard and you go fast and you think big and you commit to these things now, the upside is really wonderful. The kind of stuff we export goes from causing you know, problems and emissions in other countries to being really positive and being part of other countries' transitions as well. So the upside here is both like we get this like really strong global market, we get this export income, this is going to be great for us, but we also get to help other countries decarbonise. That's super important and it's a really critical role that we can play. It's go hard and go fast, partly because we like sport, you know, we want to win at something, but this is an incredibly important and, and really valuable thing to win at. That is the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, Heidi Lee. And this is better than yesterday. Hello and welcome. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is a bi-weekly podcast where twice a week I uh, hope to help your day become better than yesterday. In fact, I guarantee that your day will become better than yesterday. That's the promise of the show. There's over 550 episodes. We've been here since 2013 and something you hear will do just that, help your day become better than yesterday. That's the moral of the show. Uh, If you've never listened before, I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a TV host. I'm a podcaster. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I like electric vehicles. 
of all kinds, uh, cars, bikes, and motorbikes, um, because electric mobility is the way of the future, and it's also really, really fun and fast, which does kind of lend us to our guest today, but we'll get to that. Thanks for all the lovely, lovely feedback about Friday's episode around uh, making anything mean everything. If you haven't checked that out, please scroll on back and check it out. Uh, you can always get in touch with me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Quickly, let me tell you about my guest today. She's fantastic. Heidi Lee is the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. Now, we've had uh, talk on this show about Beyond Zero Emissions before because I think they're an amazing organization. They are an internationally recognized think tank. They use thorough independent research and innovative solutions to show how Australia can prosper in a zero emissions economy, all right? I know there's a lot of noise this week about multi-billion dollar rail lines that are supposed to be taking coal to ports in Gladstone, but I don't know if that really aligns with what's going on in the world. Australia can do absolutely incredible things economically, better than we're doing right now. That's the thing, better than we're doing right now. It has been shown to be the case if we transition to a zero emissions economy, which is something that all of a sudden unnamed gigantic news publishing corporations are acting like it's been a great idea all along. To say I'm cynical about the change of stance there would be an understatement from me. However, you know me and I'm a believer that you, when it comes to climate, you, you can't let perfect be the enemy of good. We just don't have the time. So if that particular news organisation wants to get on board, go for it. It's not perfect, but it's a, in the right direction. <laughs> Heidi Lee led Beyond Zero Emissions' much-lauded COVID response piece, which was something called the Million Jobs Plan. And that showed quite clearly how in just five years, renewables and low emissions projects can deliver 1.8 million new jobs in the regions and communities that those new jobs are needed the most. Now, we've got an election in Australia coming up in less than six months. And look, as far as I'm concerned, whoever you vote for, don't mind, but whoever you vote for, all I would ask is that you try to remember that if they don't have a robust climate policy, then they do not have a robust economic policy, nor a robust security policy or a robust social equity policy. It all starts with climate. If you're concerned about economy, if you're concerned about security, if you're concerned about social equity, it all starts with climate. Get the transition away from carbon right, make it equitable, make it just, and everything else will follow. If you put it in the hands of the same people in the mineral sector who've been jiggling the country like a tea bag for the last 50 years, we might miss the opportunity to catapult our country into a different way of living that is more fair and just for everybody here. It all starts with climate policy. As far as I'm concerned, 50% reduction as soon as we possibly can net zero by 2035, because that's what the science says. Anything else is people imagining that their ideology is more powerful than physics, which is, as much as they may want to believe it, it is not, and it never can be. Enjoy this chat about what possibilities lie ahead of us if we choose leaders that have a clear view of the realities of how thermodynamics work. That's a big word, but it's not really that complicated. If you know how your dinner cooks or your kettle boils, that's all you need to know. 
<laughs> but it's a fantastic conversation and it paints a picture of an Australia that is impossibly different looking to the one we have now in an amazing, amazing way. We do have so much blue sky ahead of us if we choose and we choose now. Enjoy this conversation with Heidi Lee. Heidi, I'm really grateful to speak with you today. Where in the where in the world are you today, Heidi? I'm coming to you from lockdown Melbourne. We were just talking off air. I've got the the guys are surveying my street today to try and figure out how we can get fiber into my house because the work that I do, I need to be sending big files and two megabyte upload ain't gonna do it. <laughs> um, but you know that's interesting. And I, I kind of thought about you're the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, for my sins. When we look at how our country of Australia had an opportunity with the National Broadband Network and what they ended up delivering, what can we learn about that as we look forward to letting a government deal with something as colossal as the infrastructure uh, builds required? This is, I think, such a prime example of thinking beyond election terms. My background is from the building industry. I worked as an architect and designer of of really large projects for a long time. When you're working within a what's the best thing I can do within the next three years or two years before people start judging me on my performance, you're really missing the opportunity to think about that master plan, that grand vision, and actually setting those performance goals and targets for yourself in a way that, like, helps you optimise your decision at every point in time. We do that with really big infrastructure projects where you might be thinking, well, how could we get our hospital to be double or triple the size that it is today? And if you just say, well, based on what I know today, which is what I've learnt from everything I've done before today, I think what you'll need in 15 years' time will look like something like this just doesn't work. It doesn't get you the results that you actually need. It's actually resetting the way that we we describe the end goal and the way that we track our progress towards that. There's ways of doing it well. I think we could do an awful lot better. But um, that, that one big central mega project stamped at the start and locked and set and forget for the next 10 years, not going to get us there. We've seen it before in our country. Before the NBN, there was the the very, very famous, like now it's the most famous performance venue on the planet, the Sydney Opera House, but that took decades. And that many state governments, that many prime ministers went past it. It was just this eyesore that hung onto the harbour. And it was all kinds of malarkey around that. What's the difference between something like that and something like, let's say, the Snowy River Scheme? which was huge and lasted more than one election cycle. What's the difference between those two things? To what ends? I think that we've got like they're they're both engineering marvels, right? That is like a case of having an aim to do something that's never been done before. And I think the the Jorn Utzon, like the orange peels that Mm. he took and he carved them up and he laid them out, like here's the opera house, here's how it's going to be, go figure that out. And then you end up with these these legends in in the design industry of like Ovarup getting in there and like figuring it out for the first time, how you could tension the concrete and run the the bars through it in different ways. Hadn't been done before. Could it be done now? Think about trying to do the Opera House today or or the, the Snowy River scheme with like zero emissions concrete and cement. 
it, it adds this extra layer. You can do it. And I think that that's like where you'd, I'd put both those, those achievements out there as like the ends, where the ends, did the ends justify the means and did we actually set the right goal and target for ourselves along the way? Because it's kind of extraordinary that either of them happened. Yeah. And that's, I think, the... You can see it, can't you? Like, that's the exciting challenge. I love that stuff. I love being told something's impossible. You just get on and do it. Yeah. It's, they're the best things to do. It's, it's extraordinary to stand at this. If you've ever been to any part of the Snowy River Scheme, it's colossal and it's an engineering feat that that changed a lot of our, our landscape and it changed the cultural makeup of our country and it's, it's an, an amazing thing. But at the time, there was just this political will at the other end of World War II, there was this political will to do this gigantic public infrastructure scheme. What do you think we need to get to that political will to do some of the things that we're going to need to do in the next decade around emissions and around climate mitigation and climate adaptation? Well, I mean, that's the central reason for BZE, for Beyond Zero Emissions. We are here because we believe that what's needed is to demonstrate the inherent value that this transition is going to have for our communities, for regions as well as cities, for knowledge workers as well as blue-collar workers. Like We believe that it's when you can showcase those benefits and actually make them real. It's not about bullshitting people and pulling the wool over people's eyes. It's actually about going out there and doing, doing the work in partnership with workers of all kinds to figure out where the benefits are when you do that, I think you remove a lot of the fear. I, I honestly think it was a lot of fear-based decision-making getting made. We're so worried we might not get elected again, we might lose power, we might whatever is driving these decisions. Once you can show the real benefits, you get people actually speaking up about, well, I want that kind of benefit. I don't want job uncertainty for the next decade. I want to know that my kids have a job the way that I grew up, knowing that I had a job in in regional communities and fossil fuel communities, I had a job in the mines, I had a job in the power station. You knew what was coming because that's what you, your parents did and your dad did primarily, your dad's dad. But, like, once you can start to show a really optimistic future, you can start to show where the jobs are, I think you just get rid of all of that that resistance and then you can remove the fear in the decision makers that people aren't going to like it if I start backing this stuff. Private equity and, and venture capital and superannuation funds, they are more than prepared to put their money behind things that have an outcome in 10, 20, 50 years. Yet they're not the people who are making a lot of these decisions. We're talking about people who need an outcome within preferably the next 24 months so they can then spend the following 12 months going, see how good a job we did, let's get us back into power again and we can do it one more time. When you're talking about these projects that take longer, is there a possible way to decouple decision-making behind these projects from this election cycle that seems to be getting us fucking nowhere? I think that's it. Like what we need to establish in hearts and minds around Australia is a sense of like a race to the top here. Like we may never fix politics, right? Like politics might just stay politics. But to me that's like secondary to like fixing the climate crisis. So let's get on with that bit. And if we can like have politics be politics, but at least have them fighting over who's doing the very best, most progressive policy for solving the climate crisis, then we can get on. There's a heap of other really super important issues. We can get on with those, but we're going to have an awfully hard time dealing with a lot of other injustices and a lot of other problems in society if we don't have a safe climate first. 
it's getting that kind of, it, like no one's arguing that we need a healthcare system. There are different ways that each party will approach having a healthcare system, but no one's arguing that this core tenant of what it is to do the job of the Australian government, one of those is to care for its people and we need a healthcare system to do that. Similarly, no one's arguing whether or not we need a defence force. We need a defence force. What that defence force does, how we arm it, how we equip it, how we train it, each party will have its own thing, but we have this core idea that we need a defence force. What can we do to get the people of Australia into this idea and the voters and the swing voters and people in marginal seats, the idea of like, we actually really need this thing. This is a thing that we absolutely need as a part of our community. Who cares who your favourite political team gets in? Just what are they going to do about this thing we all agree needs to be fixed, sorted out, worked on? Well, I think we're, we're dealing with different parts of like people's motivations, aren't we, Osha? Like where we've got, we're asking people who feel really uncertain about, you know, what the, the medium term prospects for their job are. And we're asking them to care about a national climate policy. That's kind of like you're reaching someone at a point where they've got really immediate concerns about themselves, about their family, their dependents, that. And, and they brought a community as well. Like this is not something that people are dealing with in isolation. It's like a vibe on the street, you know, things are slowing down, those jobs are coming off and employment is rising. That kind of stuff there. Like I think for us, we're really leaning into the the what's in it for me, the wisdom of this. Like there are real tangible benefits <laughs> to this we need to articulate them and share them. And the thing is, it's not like they're not being made up. They're not some kind of future thing. There's like already businesses, communities, local councils already benefiting from some of the transition that's underway in regions. It's really about highlighting that and helping those local success stories get a bit of the limelight so that they can like show their neighbours, like this is how we're doing it. I get to go out to places like the Hunter Valley, and I spent, spent a bit of time there when I can, when I can travel, remember those days, mm. going to the Hunter, so beautiful. We were looking at basically setting up for a completely different project, right? This is sort of thinking about end of 2019, start of 2020, beyond zero emissions at that point, we'd done all of these sector-based roadmaps for getting to zero emissions and we'd done, you know, theme by theme, new transport, buildings, stationary energy. These things were all national solutions. You're not going to experience those transitions the same from five kilometres from the beach, within five kilometres, two kilometres from the beach or some terrible distance from the beach that you happen to live. You're not going to experience that the same as you are living near the beach in a city, in a knowledge worker job, as you are when you work in a manufacturing sector, in a regional community, all that kind of stuff. So we took those big national plans and we started responding to the interest that we were getting from people living in, in regional Australia saying, well, what does that mean for me? You've just done a plan with all these like big, you know, renewable energy power stations all over the country. Like what, what, what does that mean for me living here in Port Augusta? Could you build one near us? And actually like we started to lean into that and, and work with locals, refine those ideas from that national picture into what does that look like for this place? We've done, you know, did something for Collie in southwest Western Australia there once upon a time <laughs> did some for the northern territory god darwin's beautiful isn't it incredible it's incredible and newcastle newcastle is stunning so we're gearing up to like produce the same kind of diversification plan that we've done for these other regions in the hunter and going up there all the time to like what's the sentiment like 
and people are already winning, you know, like we all know tides are changing. I'll go and meet with local businesses that they, they service the mines. They make the trucks that go out into the coal mines, into the hard rock mining. They've been transitioning those vehicles over to electric, to battery-powered vehicles for years. We're like seeing technology breakthroughs that make the kind of transition work they're doing because they really are just taking the old chassis and all of the old stuff that you can possibly reuse. They reuse all of that and they put in new not electric motor, take all of the combustion stuff out. That's great for safety, especially in a coal mine, in a hard rock mine as well. You, You don't want flammable things underground with you. But those opportunities, those initiatives are already happening and it's about what we were offering was the opportunity to use the kind of staff and and skilled volunteers that we engage with to like start to tell those stories, tell them to local communities as well because if the transition happens, local businesses in the Hunter, existing local businesses, not some fantasy new business, they're going to win. They're going to expand many times over. There's incredible electrical manufacturers. I'm thinking of there's this company called Amp Control that I went and toured the factory and I got to see a customised transformers being made. Do you know what a transformer looks like? Yeah, I think kind of like giant humanoid looking structure and then it says roll out and then it kneels down and it puts his arms behind it and it becomes a truck. No? I have small children too. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. So I'm I'm so, I like, was like right out there. You, you left the door <laughs> wide open. I had to run through it. Come on. No, a transformer is this massive big thing. It almost looks like a, a shoebox with a giant coil wrapped around it, right, with these big kind of weird Cyberman-looking things hanging off the sides of it, and it turns a certain voltage and amperage of power into another certain voltage and amperage of power, correct? That's right. I saw one getting hand woven. Mm-hmm. There are like half a dozen people in Australia that can like hand weave these custom transformers because when we're like looking at upgrading the grid, we've got a whole lot of different inputs and outputs and voltage and just up and down and all that kind of stuff. And these people are making it. This is a real, it's one of those skills that we've got that are like waning. We need to get more people trained up in like how to hand weave copper wire into a custom transformer. And I've got to say, I reckon the folks at Amp Control could happily make us transformer transformers as well. <laughs> like when <laughs> they really could, you should look them up. They did a, a pivot at the start of COVID and started making ventilators. Wow. They are super cool and they're like far from the only business up there that's like doing some really, really yeah. exciting stuff about the transition. We're recording this a couple of weeks out from the start of the next big climate summit, the big international climate summit. We've been having things dangled in front of us like we're going to make a big announcement. We're going to make a big announcement as far as the coalition government is currently in power in Australia, preferably by 2050, technology first. We don't believe, like, what do we need to about? What is the truth of what these people are saying in their rhetoric? What kind of bullshit do we need to look out for? And unless they're saying what, do we go, nah, not good enough? Look, I, I think to, to take that that sentiment, like I'm pretty practical. You can say whatever you say, but like it's what you do that really matters. So that's just like blanket statement, right? But I think of things like when I'm looking at is our, is our work at Beyond Zero Emissions actually making a difference? So like, we say all the right things. That doesn't mean we're any closer to solving climate challenges, right? When I'm looking at 
assessing did what we say make a difference. It's really about looking at what stuff happened on the ground. When we wrote a report and we said you could make all your factory equipment electric, did anyone go out there and do it? Like what new money turned up on the table for grants to help, you know, small manufacturers or medium-sized manufacturers like overcome some of those capital cost challenges of doing those retrofits? Did that happen? And it did, it did. Like there were some really tangible on-the-ground results. So when you're talking about like what were people going to say ahead of COP, it's not what you say that matters, it's what you do and what you back up with money, right? Like it's about how much new money can we get going into zero emissions solutions and get that confirmed, don't get it rebadged from somewhere else, get new money on the table now for things that are actually going to make a difference, not transition fuels, not all the stuff that we know doesn't actually have a long-term future and those investments that we know are going to land in stranded assets within the next 10 years, that kind of stuff. We don't need any fossil fuel infrastructure. We don't need gas as a transition fuel. We don't need any of that. What we need is a really coordinated national approach to this transition. And the way that you get that is by setting a really clear national policy agenda. We're taking a, a small focus look at a piece of that at Beyond Zero. We're really interested in the manufacturing sector and taking a look at these precinct-based approach to that. We want to see a national agenda set for transitioning a sector. And then we want to see coordinated national, state and local efforts to actually deliver that because we know that locals deliver local projects best. They do. And we need to be able to set up a policy and a funding framework that enables that to happen. We know we've got a lot of latent capital trying to find a home, all these green bonds, trying to find a place to invest, providing that policy certainty unlocks that channel and allows the markets to basically do their thing and help these local projects that are trying to happen and the money that's trying to get to them make that link and get things happening on the ground. So saying things is nice, but doing stuff is really what counts. When it does come to new money, we, you know, I, I'm not in charge of a venture capital fund. I'm not in charge of anything like that. I'm in charge of my super. You mentioned stranded assets. What do people need to know about where they're in their super is, the money they're going to be relying on to keep them fed and clothed and housed when they can no longer work viably? What do people need to know about where their super is and things their super might be invested in that, in your opinion, aren't going to be worth much in a decade? So for me, when I'm looking at the, the super and the really big investment space, I think there's really smart funds out there. So I think we can't look just to national shores when, we, when we're starting to assess whether or not something's got a long-term gain. We know that Australia, for a lot of purposes, is a small player in a global setting. And our funds, our super funds, are really impacted by what goes on out there in the world. The world is decarbonising. You'd be absolutely nuts not to have your super and your investments in all green initiatives. That's the kind of stuff that, you know, you, your kids are going to thank you for, <laughs> for the long run, for those, those big social investments. That's great news for them. But it's also the stuff that's going to be more resilient over time so that as these global shocks do roll through and we see the decline of fossil fuels and we see the decline of those assets that people are throwing billions of dollars into, that we've got the next thing already coming. We know that we can't build this new economy from a standing start after we've, we've burnt the last lump of coal. We know that we've got to do that right from yesterday, right from 30 years ago. 
and that kind of thing now, the, one of the biggest push factors you can have as an individual is to completely clean up your superannuation and move that all into, you know, 100% renewable, all positive green investments and even your bank as well. Make the move and, and take your, your banking over to a, a green, a, you know, ethical provider because they're the ones that can make a difference with your money. Even if you are not got that much to contribute, you make a difference by being another counter in their books instead of in someone else's. It shows that you care. It shows that people are moving across. So the more that we see that happening, the stronger signal we send to the market, both the huge capital move, but also for existing banks and large ones that aren't doing enough to start to clean up their act so that they can retain a customer base. There was a report that came out the other day. Every report I read about climate chills me to my bones. One of the things said that if Australia wants to stand a chance at avoiding all kinds of horrible things happening, particularly around humanitarian crises, we need to be at half our carbon emissions by 2030 and zero by 2035. That is a colossal, colossal thing to ask. Do you think we can do that? Yes, we can absolutely do this. Why not? I think this just becomes one of those incredibly like divisive, like turn you off at the start kind of questions. I got asked this last night at an event. Isn't it all too late? So too late for what? Too late to try? There's this idea that if we can only get most of the way there, then we will have failed. And I love there's this like little cartoon that's been around for like 10 years and it's a picture of a lecture theatre and you kind of, you take it from the view from the standing at the back and the, the slide on the, on the screen is like, but what if we create healthy air and clean water and all renewable stuff and we have like this better world and it's all for nothing? <laughs> so I think it's absolutely crazy to start to think about the likelihood of success as a metric for whether or not you'll try. I love impossible tasks. This one will be like the most phenomenal achievement we'll ever get in our lifetime. I think it's one that everyone can play a role in and I think it's one that you probably don't realise that doing a little bit more, if everyone did that, that's going to be the kind of activity that gets us there. So we will absolutely do this because we must and it, the truth is the transition is going to be pretty great when it happens. So the more we get on with it, the more we realise those benefits and the easier it's going to be to keep going. I'm going to use a word you taught me earlier in our conversation. What's the whiffum? <laughs> oh, I've been so much trouble for sharing the whiffum. I got to, I got told off all the time. Oh, I think it's perfect. Like, though, but don't I think ever say that. But it's That's perfect. A terrible word. No, it's a great word. What's the what's in it for me of making this transition from where we are now to halving our emissions by 2030 to net zero by 2035. What's the what's in it for me for uh, Mr. and Mrs. T payer living in the western suburbs, two and a half kids, two cars in the driveway, like to go to Bali once a year, you know, got a nice super, looking forward to a boat and living in Bribey Island uh, <laughs> in the rest of my days. Like what's in it for them? So I think that first and foremost, we look at this transition to zero emissions as something that we're going to have to upgrade a whole lot of physical infrastructure that we've already built our towns and cities with. So everything from that house that you're living in now probably could do with an insulation upgrade, 
chances are, like knowing the building industry pretty well, chances are your house needs insulation upgrade, it probably needs draft proofing, it probably needs better windows. And should you do all of that, those things, not only would you have lower bills to heat and cool your space, but you're actually also going to get health benefits for yourself because your body gets stressed when you're under like things that are too cold or things that are too hot. So you end up with both those, the cost savings and health benefits of a transition to zero emissions because we cannot just flick over to renewables and continue to squander the energy the way that we do at the moment, heating and cooling those homes. We need that efficiency thing. We need to manage the demand side of what we're doing as well as that energy generation side. So inherent in the transition is upgrading the physical infrastructure that we've already got particularly interested in buildings. I like buildings. But doing that now and doing that early, and that's actually going to be a really important with them. So I think, you know, you start with like a building and you're going to have your home. It's going to be upgraded and it's going to be really great to be in and it's going to be really affordable to run. What Australia needs to put in place to help that happen for you is going to be a policy framework around allowing the kind of markets, the kind of businesses that set up to finance home energy upgrades at no capital cost to the the building occupant. Those things already exist in Europe and the UK. They need to be applied here in Australia at a larger scale than they already are. We've got some great businesses that are starting this, but this needs to be transformed. There's a role for government in this. It needs to be transformed and expanded to be able to allow all home dwellers to be able to have a healthy, efficient home. It can be done. It's a bit of paperwork. There's no technical challenge here. It's just a matter of will, time, and paperwork. Just, just What's the no capital cost? What's the business model that's happening in Europe around these upgrades? Is it similar to putting no dollars down solar on your house? It's kind of like that. So we're, we're looking at, we profiled Energy Sprong, which is a company that looks at bringing together under one managed energy services contract your energy provider and someone who'd come in and do the upgrade on your home. So basically your experience, my my experience as a consumer is like this one bill, those things keep happening. I make myself available for people to come in and fix stuff and do an appliance upgrade and do some weather sealing and stuff in my home. Then the bill that I pay is adjusted all of those costs, the, the capital costs and the ongoing energy savings cost is all managed by that company. So I don't necessarily see the immediate big reduction in energy costs. I would get them cheaper, but not all the way. And that little difference between my actual energy cost and what it was before and my, my new cheaper, more efficient energy cost becomes a little bit of, of surplus that's used to pay off that capital. But I don't have to worry about any of that. Right. I don't have to take out the loan and do yeah. all that stuff for myself. I have to have the money up front to do it, Mm. to make this possible. There are companies that set up that integrate the finance and the capital upgrade side. They exist elsewhere. We need a bit of legislation, need a bit of paperwork. This kind of stuff already happens in the commercial building sector. We need to make it more available Mm. to more homes around Australia. And that's a really important first self-interest piece that can sit at the centre of this. And we can go through, we could talk about transport, we could talk about your shopping, we could talk yeah. about a whole lot of other things. But there are so many small benefits along the way yeah, yeah. that once you make that commitment, this is the end goal, you can just chip away and move through this mm. in the same direction because you know what's coming. You know sooner or later you're going to get a home upgrade, you're going to get your vehicle upgraded, you're going to move your money over. This is all going to be happening. Having some confidence and certainty that it's going to happen, it doesn't need to be a choice, it doesn't need to be something you think about. We've all seen the doom and gloom. Uh, scenarios. We understand. Everyone understands 
what is coming. We understand how much heat's locked in the atmosphere. We understand what will happen over the next 20 years. No matter, even if we did your plans to perfection, completed, done, closing beyond zero emissions, no need for us anymore. We're closing at five o'clock tonight. That we would still warm up for the next couple of decades. And that's terrifying stuff. But that means that we're like, well, we have this absolute certainty about we know what's going to happen. We know these things to plan for. And we know what we stand to lose if we don't. We're a massive export economy. We dig things out of the ground. We sell it to other people. Within a decade, people won't want that stuff. If we don't do anything, well, you know, you want to buy some Nokia shares, I can sell you. Uh, <laughs> that cost a lot less than they did when I bought them. What do we stand economically to gain as a nation? And where do, what do we stand to discover if we do go down this path? We're about to release a really exciting piece of work that answers that exact question. When we look at the vulnerability of our export market at the moment, it's around the fossil fuel exports. We know that that's going to disappear shortly and we put our researchers to task and said, well, we talk about this, this green revolution, this like all these great new clean technology products coming to market. How much proportional to our current fossil fuel exports, how much of a dent could that make in that size problem? If you move fast, if you move really fast, you could solve this three times over. There is a spectacular uplift on the other side of investing hard and fast in clean technology products. We only looked at the very top few big ones that we could we could do some detailed analysis of. I won't go through those just now. So you got a little teaser, you can go and look at the website or hopefully check out some cool media we're doing around the release of the report. But this is going to be enormous. We need to make a clear choice now about the uplift because if we don't decide now about the opportunity we want to seize, then all we're going to be doing is trying to batten down the hatches and try to minimise our losses while everyone else has moved forward and taken this opportunity. We like to use this analogy of like, you know, we export rocks to the world. The world out there, they turn those rocks into really valuable stuff. They turn them into steel and you could use Australia's renewable energy, vast supplies of renewable energy to make green steel right here in Australia. We have emerging technologies that are going to make that even cheaper and easier than it is today. It's challenging today. But knowing that that's an opportunity, committing to that opportunity and, and investing in that, that's the kind of thing that Australia can look at right now, get behind and actually get to the head of the pack. Why wouldn't we be at the front of these kind of developments instead of waiting for someone else to do it? I was told that the University of New South Wales invented the, you know, the technology that sits inside PV cells. Something like 84% of all photovoltaic cells around the world have University of New South Wales technology in them. How many solar cells we make in Australia today? Barely any. We pass up that we're really smart people here, really capable manufacturers. We need to back in the steps in between this. Really smart people, great ideas about what we can do with new clean technologies. We need to back in this development piece and actually commercialise onshore and use Australian raw materials 
to make these products because we can make them for ourselves. We can use put those solar panels. Probably a better one would be like wind turbines. We can put those wind turbines in our own backyard. We can also export, you know, the central turbine piece. We can also export those motors to the world because they're fantastic. So we could we could choose to do that if we wanted to. And that's why when you say, could we actually get there in 10 years? Of course we could if we want to. We're smart enough, we're capable enough. We just need to line things up better and we need that policy certainty in place so that we're all pulling in the same direction. What do you think is standing in the way of the people who claim to be the economic rationalists who are currently holding the keys to the car in Australia? What do you think stands in the way of them pulling the trigger and going for this, like really going for this? What we need to do is to get out into the regions of Australia, show them how much benefit is on the upside of of making the transition to zero emissions, help shine a light on those businesses that are already making the moves and they are already winning. That kind of voter sentiment, that kind of support in places where we assume that there is none is the kind of demonstration that we need to see that helps to shift the minds in, in Canberra in line with, in tune with, the changes that are happening on the ground in the hearts and minds and the the hip pockets and the local communities in the Hunter, in central Queensland, in Collie, in the Northern Territory. Like this stuff is already happening. We need more of it. It needs to be much faster and it can be done so much better with coordination from feds, states and local communities all happening together. This is how we're going to make the shift. It does require a leader and he or she has to stand up there and go, right, we're going to do this. I know you're enjoying your ferries right now, but we're going to build a bridge across Sydney Harbour. Or I know you kind of like where the Snowy River runs at the moment, but I tell you what, we're going to turn the river around and we're going to just flood the inland and away we go, agriculture for everybody. It's going to take someone to stand up on the podium and he or she's going to go, we're just going to do it. I personally feel like this, this COVID pandemic has kind of shown us that The system that we have allowed to be maintained, our governmental system and our election system, and the way those people come to power and hold power, that's the system we've accepted. The results we're seeing right now are the result of accepting this system because they're so stymied by action. They're so afraid to act in case that people who play for the other team do something. Then it seems like it's a good idea and I'm stealing their idea. How can we as a community kind of see the bipartisan way or the collective way forward because there's if we don't do something about this the injustice in our own country let alone the injustice around the world the injustice in our own country could split us more than your best friend who doesn't want to take a vaccine and now it's a bit uncomfortable to have them around the house you know this is going to be a big deal if we don't do something about this like how how can we see past this your team my team mentality so I think one of the, the really critical things here is to make sure that when we're putting these, you know, solutions out into the world, like that's, that's my day job, right? It's amazing people I work with, they're like really smart, they've got these fantastic solutions. Here's how we can get to zero emissions in this sector, in this place. When we put these out into the world, this is not just about using these stories to back in an existing political party's position. It's not about backing in an existing investor's position or one place over another. These kind of stories need to come into the world in a language and in a framing that anyone can see themselves in. So it's about depoliticizing the solution as well as the, the policy framework or this opposition to it, right? So it's about having the jobs and growth 
You know, we wrote last year, the million jobs plan. It's all about the jobs and growth opportunities we could deliver in the next five years in response to the COVID pandemic. Every single one of those jobs is about, you know, accelerating the transition to a zero emissions economy. That's a little byline. Mm -hmm. It is the million jobs plan. And that's, you know, been well received by by all sides of politics. All flavour of politicians uh, are interested in the kind of things we're putting forward, fact-based, jobs, growth, et cetera. The byline is it's zero emissions. The bylines are that it's led by communities. It's done fairly. It's done well. But we need to find a way to make the stories that we're telling about solutions part of everyone's reality, not just the left or not just the right. This is really about all of us coming together behind something we all want to see for different reasons. We might want it, but it's something that's going to benefit all of us and something that we can all get behind. You, you mentioned the Hunter Valley before. What about somewhere like Gladstone, all right? We've been, no one's ever been to Gladstone. There's a gigantic aluminum plant there. And when I first visited there in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, the people that, that I met there, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, sometimes you come out and you find these big spots of paint on your car that have been dissolved after it's rained because the pollution that came out of the aluminum plant was so, so intense. And that, But that's where everybody worked. And that's where everyone, everybody worked in businesses that supported that plant and the alumina that came out of that plant, Tanum Sands, I think the place was called, like humongous things. So, but you've recently done some analysis of the economy up there. Like, what are some stories you can tell us about that sort of transition? I'll start with a personal story. So I was born just up the road from Gladstone in a a little town called Rockhampton. And beautiful. I lived there for the first 20 years of my life. Beautiful beef capital of the world. Yep, been there many according times. According to Rockhampton. <laughs> beef capital of Australia. Great place for a vegetarian to grow up and a stunning part of the world. Like the beaches there are amazing. The community is really, really beautiful. We have some real challenges though. Like I was born in the early 80s. By the time I left town, we've had a whole huge boom in the mining sector We've got a massive inflation in all of the house prices up and down the coast. We've got huge challenges facing us, like social challenges as well, from the fly-in, fly-out, the seven-on, seven-off workflow of, you know, the mines and, and the really big infrastructure things that are happening. So I think what happens in Gladstone, we talk about the smelter, but there's also the massive gas pipeline projects up there which have caused enormous problems for the community as well as the upsides. So I think when when I go to Gladstone now, I got there this year, talk happy travel stories. Amazing. But like the, I know, right, the sentiment on the ground there is, is much more subdued than in the Hunter. We really are in the early stages of conversations about the scale of the transition. It's really a different story because we've got a community where We've got a really recent experience at the gas pipelines where things didn't go well in the long run, where they saw a whole lot of the, the community fabric torn apart by things like the house price inflation and the cost of living and how do you work in lo- the local cafe when you can't afford to live anywhere near there. So you really, really had like quite a big rift in the community as well. The stories that resonate in those areas, it's not about the question of whether or not the coal-fired power stations are going to stay or they're going to go. We know that they're going to change, but the question is timing and the question is planning and the question is making sure that everyone's looked after along the way. So the piece of work that we've done to support the conversations locally 
is an economic analysis of what would happen if you did take a renewable energy industrial precinct approach to transitioning those existing industries that are up there and you looked at doing that transition over over 10 years like what kind of existing pieces of existing kind of skills and, and production have you already got on the ground We've looked at the top five uh, industries in Gladstone, including the smelter, including other things, and we scaled them up over 10 years. Said, okay, what if they could get affordable and reliable renewable energy from inland? What happens if we can actually confirm and, and take the upper limit line of like, how much of this could we export? Like, just what's the physical constraints here? Not the, not the you know, political constraints, the physical constraints of this. You could see absolutely enormous benefits to the local community. When we look at Gladstone at the moment, we could add with a with this precinct approach to manufacturing and powering it all with renewables, something like 11,000 new jobs, ongoing jobs over 10 years. So build up 11,000. It's a region with 10% unemployment. Like this is enormous. So we're looking at that employment opportunity but you're also looking at the, the regional economic benefits. So the type of analysis that we had done by ASIL Allen was a, a cost-benefit analysis. So we're looking at what are the regional impacts. So you could get add $2 billion a year to Gladstone's local economy. So one of the first questions I get whenever I start this conversation is like, well, yeah, but who are those jobs for? Are they like, you know, we're talking about those 11,000 jobs, more than half of them will be trades will be people connected to existing industries uh, there'll be drivers the same skills profile that you already see in that sector so we haven't done like a it's not a calculation that includes any kind of projection around a decline in any other sector it really is just a cold heart if you did a renewable energy industrial precinct what kind of benefit are you going to get Eleven thousand jobs more than half of them trades and drivers and other things that this region already has plenty of and really good ones of this is the opportunity on the table for this place. Amazing. It's, it's, it's why I had no idea that you grew up in Rocky, but it's it's one of these parts of the country where I absolutely can totally relate. If someone strolls in and says, hey, so the entire planet's in trouble and everything you know and love here in Rockhampton is in jeopardy, but that means a lot of things that are very familiar to you are going to have to change. All that beef, don't know if we're still going to be able to do what we do with it. All right. All that coal mining, don't know if we're still going to be able to. Don't worry. It'll be fine. Like it's so in the storytelling, you know, so many people, they define themselves by, I come from the beef capital of the world, you know, or the amount of coal mining that's happening outside of Rockhampton is is something that my family has been in for generations and it is what has provided for me and my grandfather's and my grandmother's retirement and everything like, you know, this is what we've always known. It's so melded into people's identities, these industries. It seems to me like the economic work that you do at Beyond Zero Emissions is such a huge part of it, but the personal storytelling, the whiffum, none of the economic stuff means anything if you can't talk to a family who has a whole bunch of high-vis hanging on the line saying it's going to be okay. Yeah, I, you know, my family still lives up there. My mum still lives up there. And going up and visiting her like once a year or so, like in winter because I've become acclimatised to Melbourne, geez, it's hot in the middle of summer. When I'm up there and I'm like seeing, you know, old school friends on the street and catching up, like, a lot of them are working in the mines now. That's what you get to do. That's the best job opportunity up there when you you don't move to the big city, you don't move south, sell out and move south. What they're looking at, though, is like 
these everyday lifestyle things. So one of the things I loved about growing up at the beach was like on the weekends, you'd go, you'd go out on the boat, you'd go sailing. Like it wasn't for like fancy rich people or anything. It's like what you did. Like you'd go out in a tinny, you'd go out on a boat, like, and you'd go fishing and swimming and you, you know, tool around on the islands and that kind of stuff. Like it's beautiful. When I talk to people that I went to school with now, I remember this conversation with one of the guys, electrical engineer at the mines in Warmba, and he's talking about, well, he's going to adjust, he's going to get his ticket adjusted so that he can work on houses. He's like, great, that's a great plan. It's like, how's the seven on seven? I was like, yeah, that's really tough, really tough on my wife. And, you know, we'd like to have kids and, you know, it's going to be really hard. And i got to tell you, like, it's a pain because, like, at the moment, because of the way that we're, they were taking the coal out of the ports in Gladstone, we were ending up with more and more coal dust across that whole bay, the Capricorn Bay, all the way through there. And coal dust in the water means fish can't breathe. So on his seven on, seven off, he couldn't actually get the boat out far enough offshore to get past all the coal dust so you could go fishing and actually catch a decent fish. So it was one of these like central things that like you love about growing up on the coast yeah. is like this really like close relationship with the water and the bay and this pristine environment and then you find like you know he's telling me the connection between here is like it's totally rubbish like we've got seven on seven off i can hardly get out it takes me like a day so i gotta go all the way i gotta go like four or five hours offshore what to be able to like fish to get the same fish that i used to get just going out the back of keppel so when you, like, that's an anecdote, right? That's not everyone's experience. That's like one guy that I ran into on the street, but it stays with me that like, you can have this lived experience. Like this is the best job I can get, Heidi. Like, this is like, what's right for me. And I've got this house to pay off. Can't afford to pay off a house around here unless I've got this job. Yeah. But you know, I also can't do a whole lot of the other stuff that used to be like kind of central to really mm. enjoying living here. You mentioned uh, people in the cities not seeing the, um, uh, the effects of the industries that you're talking about transitioning. I surreptitiously told my wife we're going to Heron Island, uh, which is uh, you fly in Gladstone, you, f- you get the boat out of Gladstone to get there, and leaving the boat out of out of Gladstone, you just go past the gas you were talking about. Because in my mindset, I'm like going, I'm going to go scuba diving on a reef, I'm going to see manta rays, it's going to be this pristine marine environment, I can't wait, there's going to be anemones and anemone fish and the fighting Nemo fish, and the first half an hour as you're leaving harbour is just, fucking gigantic fossil fuel infrastructure, these huge like war of the world's you know, globes of gas that are waiting for a boat to come and siphon it out of there. I was just so gobsmacked by the scale of it, you know, the, the export. Yeah. And, of course, it would be terrifying if that's your business and that's all you've grown up around to come, you know, have some city person walk in and say, oh, by the way, this is all not going to be here in 10 years. You know, <laughs> you know? so telling the story about what's gonna, what is going to replace it is so very, very important because I get a feeling that the decision to decarbonise and decision to move away from fossil fuels, Australia is not going to get a choice in that matter. It's going to happen whether we like it or not. Would that be true? Absolutely. We are not in control of our destiny here. The part that we're in control, so we are going to go to zero emissions because we're part of a global market. We have globalised. We bought into this whole thing. We have open borders. We have trading partners. Australia is going to get to zero emissions. We're either going to get there slowly and painfully and behind the pack, and it's going to get more and more painful. There are going to be more and more downsides to going slowly. We are not kidding. If you go hard and you go fast and you think big and you commit to these things now, the upside is really wonderful. 
And it actually supports, because we are talking about having export markets here, the kind of stuff we export goes from causing you know, problems and emissions in other countries to being really positive and being part of other countries' transitions as well. So the upside here is both like, you know, the whiff them for Australia, well, what's in it for us? Well, we, we get this like really strong global market. We get this exporting income. This is going to be great for us. But we also get, you know, if you're, if you're feeling generous, you also get to help other countries decarbonize. That's super important. And it's a really critical role that we can play. We've had for a while, you know, we have an outsized emissions problem here. Like it's a bit embarrassing. Our shadow is quite large. We could be really, really proud of what we do next. We could have something incredibly positive and have an outsized positive contribution to a global problem here. That's the opportunity that's before us. And that's why it's go hard and go fast, partly because we like sport. You know, we want to win at something. But this is an incredibly important and, and really valuable thing to win at. Just taking a moment away from Heidi Lee to talk to you about another episode that you might enjoy. Mike Cannon-Brooks joined me on the show. I know I do talk about this episode quite a bit. You may have already checked it out, but if you haven't, dig into Mike Cannon-Brooks. He's a a really brilliant thinker and really literally puts his money where his mouth is when it comes to getting Australia off fossil fuels and into a zero emissions economy, because that is where amazing jobs and growth lie. Uh, You can scroll back in the feed a little bit uh, and you'll find Mike Cannon-Brooks there. Here's just a taste. There are tons of plans for getting Australia to net zero by 2050. Really good thought through scientific ones. Most of those plans are very well thoroughly costed. Most of them show it is a benefit to the Australian economy. I can't say all, but the vast majority, 90% plus, I think I'm fairly safe in saying, of those plans show it is a benefit for the Australian economy to move to net zero. And lots of plans about how we would go do this. So it's total BS if anyone's feeding the line. Don't know how much it's going to cost. We don't have a plan. Like, that's all crap. That's just willful choosing to not go and read the work of lots of other passionate and smart Australians who've already done that. All right. That's Mike Cannon-Brooks. You can find him if you scroll back a little ways and you can dig into Mike Cannon-Brooks there. He's a, he might be a bit sad about South's losing um, the grand final, but I'm sure he's doing great today. Um, you might hear an ad here if you do. Thank you. If you don't, we'll get back to Heidi Lee in just a sec. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You mentioned you've got little kids, right? When you look at your little kids, it was funny over dinner we said the other night we were talking about 
you know, vaccinations. We were talking about people accepting science. And I said, well, this is one thing your, gen- your generation is going to have to deal with. It's, and she goes, oh, no, what now? Because <laughs> she's just being told <laughs> your generation is the one, your generation is the one. I'm like, bloody hell, man, how much more can we put on these kids' shoulders, right? Yeah. When you look at your little ones, how do you get through? And I ask this, like, honestly, you know more about the data. You know more about where we're going. You know more about our chances of getting this done right than anyone can you hold that in your heart and still go out and play on the slides with your kids? When I hear questions like that, there's a proverb or story about the animals watching a bushfire, right? Like all the, the animals and, and everyone's standing back and going, oh, my gosh, like look at this terrible fire. That's our home. Everything's gone. And it's the story of this little hummingbird who like kept like going back and forth to the water and he's got this tiny little beak and he's going back and he's like putting one drop of water on the fire all the time. And they're like, that's totally pointless. Why, why would you even bother in the face of everything? You're like, why would you even bother trying? And he's like, because you shouldn't do nothing just because you can only do a little. And I think I always think of that story when it's like, well, how can you like switch off from, you know, <laughs> decarbonize Australia, work for a better, you know, because I'm not doing this because, I'm not personally motivated by avoiding the horrors. I'm personally motivated by achieving the positives. And those horrors are still there and it's a real, you know, you've got to dive into that from time to time and, and make sure that you're not, you know, making yourself sick by not dealing with, you know, the horror of failing. But, like, I've done impossible things before. You've done impossible things before. Imagine what we can all do together. This is something worth winning at and knowing that, I'm trying in my own small way to, to make this difference. That's like, that's something great. I can switch off at the end of the day and, and play with the kids and go for a run and kick a ball and stuff and, and have fun as well. Like what's it all for if it's not to preserve the good bits in life? Ah, uh, the, the, the political system I was talking about before, Heidi, that one of the things I dislike about it greatly, I love democracy. I just think there's better ways to do it. But one of the things I dislike greatly about our political system is that it is designed in a certain way that the best people for the job never go anywhere near it. So you strike me as the kind of person that I would love to vote for. If you got up there and said, hey, I'm Heidi, I'm going to lead the, you know, uh, beyond zero emissions, we're all in this together, hold my hand, we're all going to go, go, go across the water together party, vote for me. But there's no way you're ever going to become the leader or get involved in politics, is there? No. <laughs> you see? Oh, no, no. It's a beautiful idea, isn't it? I quite like Parliament House. It's a great building. I like the old one. I like the new one. I like the engineering that goes into that. That's really cool. I do too. But you lost me. You lost me at the uh, the system. Yeah. And that's the thing. You know, it's not even a safe workplace. We've all bloody seen that. It's not a safe workplace for women, let alone fucking anyone who've got, who's got any actual vision to stand in because the, the system doesn't reward people with vision to stand up there and say, we're going to build this thing. It's going to take us 12 years. That's four election cycles. Boom. <laughs> you know? So true. It's, it's bananas. But I'm grateful that there are leaders like you in our community who are able to exist outside of those things and hopefully help those inside those beautiful buildings that you mentioned. I think the real inspiration for me in working at Beyond Zero Emissions is just like tapping into like an incredible knowledge bank. You don't need to like have PhDs, many of our volunteers and contributors do, but like you just don't need that to just be able to get on with it. So often it's not about 
the technology piece. It's just applying things really well, taking good care. So one of the things that we found in the building industry, like you can do passive house, you can do all that stuff really well, but it's the time that it takes to like seal and tape you know, lining around every window, every door, every, you know, skirting board and going back around and doing that, that takes a long time, right? And our market is set up in the construction industry does not promote the benefits of doing that. Like I, I loved many years ago now, I think about 15 years ago when I was working in um, public projects, it, we were just getting into energy performance contracting for some of the engineering services firms. You know what that is? What's that? I feel like it's a it's a bit nerdy, but it's like imagine if your builder or your engineer, whoever, then they actually get a financial bonus. They get a financial kickback for making your building really efficient. Wow! So what the energy performance contracting looks like is that you say, well, the benchmarks. You do all your designs. People, people like me and my former life will do all your drawings for you and go, here's your building. Here's what it's going to be. An energy rater runs that through their, you know, model and says this will cost you, say, $100 a, a square metre to heat each year and heat and cool, $100 a square metre. That's your fixed price. You put that into a contract with your builder or your mechanical services engineer, someone who can actually make a difference to that and say, all right, anything between, say, the benchmark is 100 if you can get anything below 95 it's yours. What do you think they're motivated to do now? Right. That's not like, get in and out quickly. This no. is about a long-term game. Yeah. Look, Heidi, I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I'm, I'm really grateful that we were able to have this conversation today, as certainly as we're heading into the next six months of election campaigning, what, you know, people were wanting to be look, looking in their own local seats, looking for their local members, looking to kind of see the moves they're making. Because as you mentioned, this is the thing that is happening, whether we like it or not. It's just how is the person who is running in your electorate going to deal with it? And how is it going to, how are they going to deal with it? And the path is very clear. The path is so, so, so clear. What can people do to support you? If they want to support the work you're doing, how can they do that? Well, first of all, it's important to say like Beyond Zero Emissions, we are an independent think tank. So we don't have political party or a university institution backing us we are funded by people like you we are supported by philanthropy almost 100 percent philanthropy so one way that if you do have the means you can support our work by donating to us the other really cool thing that we offer at beyond zero emissions is most of our work is done by volunteers and that is really smart professionals academics business leaders investors People who really know their stuff coming together around the table to solve some of these really critical problems. And this is where our best ideas come from. We use a team of staff to refine this and package this and get this out. But this work is done by volunteers and they really are the centrepiece of everything we do. So there are opportunities to get involved in BZD's work as well. And you can check all that out on our website. Amazing. Heidi, again, disappointed you'll never go into politics because I know I would love to vote for somebody who speaks like you do about this kind of stuff, but also grateful you're not in it because I know how much you can't get done when you're in that beautiful, beautiful building with the lovely flagpole. Uh, but I'm grateful that you are doing the work you're doing. Heidi, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Such a pleasure. That was Heidi Lee. You can find out more about Beyond Zero Emissions, bze.org.au is where you can go and have a look and find them. If you enjoyed the show today, the very best thing you can do for me is to tell a friend. Recommend this. Share it with someone. Let somebody know. 
if there's someone that you're having conversations with about what's going on in climate policy at the moment, how our government, a small portion of our government, a part of our government that only 4% of the population voted for, is holding the rest of the country to ransom. Yes, I'm talking about the National Party. If you want to have, if you have conversations about that, it's doing your head in. Uh, maybe share this conversation with other people to let them know that there are very smart people working very hard to try to show the regions that these politicians pretend to represent that there is jobs, there is growth, there is possibility away from the way we're currently doing things. And it's bigger and more profitable if we make the choice now. Please, that'd be great. Keep an ear out on Wednesday. I'm going to start dipping into some episodes from the past, but I promise I'll make it quick. But it, it could be, a, you know, a good way to, to get up to speed on some apps you haven't listened to. I know some folks are interested in listening to every episode ever. Uh, they're a very exclusive club. It's pretty fantastic. But keep an ear out on Wednesday. There might be a new episode dropping. But other than that, uh, if you need to get in touch with me, send us your email at gmail.com or find me on Instagram, osha underscore Ginsburg. Great to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Look after yourself this week. Let me say thank you very much to Andy Marr my audio producer, Rachel Barrett, my executive producer, Bruce Steele, who helps out on research and production support, and you for listening. So yeah, until we speak on Wednesday, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Hold up, what was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 